Hello, everybody. Welcome back to an episode of Views from the Arch. I'm your host, Delvon, and today we have a very special guest to talk about mental health. So stay tuned. We're going to take an early message from our sponsors so we don't interrupt the episode. Hello, everybody. I know you know me, but I'm going to tell you again, I'm your phenomenal host, Delvon. Let's talk about somebody. Let's talk about Anchor. Listen, I use Anchor for Views from the Arch. I've had a previous podcast. I used Anchor on that podcast. I think Anchor is a phenomenal website to use if you're a starting podcaster and you want to get your voice out there. They will help you. They will push your podcast out to places like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I think if you're an individual who wants to start a podcast, please consider using Anchor. Anchor is a great website. Simple, easy, and quick to use. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Views from the Arch. As always, I'm your lovely and COVID-free host, Delvon. Today, we have a good guest with us, and her name is Michelle Anhang. Michelle is from Canada, and she is a life coach and author who assists families with loss and mental health issues. Michelle assists families in being... uh, She kind of arms them with strategies and the general knowledge of how to handle loss and you know, overall uh, mental health. Uh, Michelle has a BA in psychology from uh, York University in Toronto, as well as numerous coaching certificates. Michelle, does that sound about right? Yeah, sounds great. All right. Excellent. So can you kind of tell us what some of the work you do? Sure. So so my specialty is um, helping families um, with mental health challenges often, um, for those of us who um, who have a family member with um, some sort of mental illness, we know that it doesn't just impact them; it, it affects the entire family. Um, you know, sometimes there's a bit of a roller coaster ride depending on what the, the symptoms are. And um, so, you know, the work that I'm doing is really helping. You know, on one side, helping the family members to lovingly detach because you know our natural tendency is to to kind of want to fix, like. You're suffering. I see you're in pain. I don't want you to be in pain. What can I do to make it better? And we, we go into this space of like really wanting that person, you know, to be healthy. But at the same time, sometimes we, you know, want it so badly for them that we don't let them just be in whatever, you know, space. So, for example, with depression, you know, it's hard for us to see somebody you know, being in bed maybe for a couple of days and not doing anything. So we're like, oh, why don't you go for a walk? You should exercise. You should do this. You should do that. And, you know, it ends up making them feel worse because then they're feeling like, you know, they're failing the family. (laughs) And um, so I help the family members get a little bit of perspective around where they might be trying to fix or change things. Um, you know, and, and of course, it's important that we are there and advocating and helping our family member. And at the same time, if they are being treated by the professionals, um, you know, we have to kind of give space for the professionals and our family member to, to do their work together. And our role as, as family is really just to love this person unconditionally. And, you know, that comes from a place of, of fullness, of you know, I'm taking care of me so that I can be there for you, not from a place of being depleted. So just noticing where there might be gaps in um, in our own taking care of ourselves 
so that we are coming from this place of just, I'm here to love you no matter what state you're in. And if you just, you know, if you need to be in bed and, just, you know, just need me here, I support that. Um, and just really be there for them in showing up in the best way that we can. Um, not, you know, because often we're, we're in a space where, um, you know, we're giving so much that we are depleted and then sometimes we get resentful and then we don't want to admit to that. And so, you know, it's a vicious cycle. So, so really helping the family members find their own balance, build their own resilience so they can show up fully. Um, and I also work with people who have, um, you know, varying levels, but usually um, milder mental health challenges. So it could be uh, depression, it could be anxiety, ADHD, um, things like that, where they, they might be working with a professional, they might be on medication, you know, overseen by, by a doctor, they might be working in therapy, but they really want to empower themselves uh, because as, as we know, medication isn't the only um, solution for mental health challenges. We can take medication, that's great, but there's work that we need to do on mindset. There's work that we can be doing on just creating um, a healthier lifestyle that supports us. Uh, and, and as well, I'm very big on mindfulness, which I find... Um, you know, helps us create that mind-body connection that is often missing, um, particularly, say, with anxiety or with depression, where we have episodes and we might not catch it until we're really deep in it. Um, and so, you know, and I, you know, developed this work through my own mental health challenges. Um, I have lived with depression and anxiety. And I learned that, um, you know, the more I became, I, I developed that mind-body connection and I became aware of what are the signals for me when I'm having, um, you know, say a depressive episode or perhaps, you know, a higher in anxiety, I can catch it pretty quickly. And then, you know, I've learned a lot of tools in my self-care um, to say, okay, what do I need right now? I'm not judging that it's happening. I'm looking at it as information and I'm seeing, you know, how can I um, take care of myself best so that I don't necessarily sink into some, you know, a deep depression or get into a really full-blown anxiety attack. And I found, you know, that's been extremely helpful. My clients find that very helpful. So really um, empowering people that they, they can take their own health into, you know, their health into their own hands. Okay. So with, with all of that, what is the general goal is the general goal to find balance or is it you or is it mostly just to kind of you know give people the tools to help them like you know teach a man how to fish kind of thing give them the tools to in the long run help themselves yeah i, I, I love the way you said that it's, it's really it's teaching them how to fish exactly it's you know um you know I think with mental illness, there's often this idea that there's, there, there is a dependency that's created. You know, we think we're dependent on the medication. Uh, and then if, you know, sometimes the medication stops working or sometimes, you know, there, so we feel very helpless. And so really, yeah, when you know how to fish, when you have the tools, you know, that's a huge piece of it. And of course, it's not going to take away the episodes. They will still happen, but at least you can see it coming. You can gather up the, the resources that you need. And and that is building resilience. Resilience, it comes from increasing and building our resources. 
So, you know, for example, um, you know, one thing that, that I do with my clients is, um, you know, we'll talk about who are the people in your support system that you can lean on. What, you know, so if, you know, say it's depression, then, um, when they see that, okay, I'm going into an episode, they'll have the person that they will reach out to and say, you know what, I think I might be going into an episode. Can you check in on me? Because support is such a huge piece of it. And when we're down, we, we sometimes can't think of like who to call. So we, we plan these things in advance of like, okay, like, you know, kind of having an emergency plan. And, um, you know, they, they say that like, you know, I, I think we all kind of grew up with that when, you know, when we were kids of like, you know, what's the, the plan if there's a fire in your house, you know, and knowing like looking for the knowing in advance what the emergency exits are, what to do, where's the meeting place. So the same idea, setting it up in advance, and then knowing what to look for um, when it's happening, so it doesn't need you know the fire does not need to blow out of control, um, and it, it can be extinguished quickly. Okay, so uh, one of the questions I had: so are you? I don't want to say anti, but are you more against medication or are you more of a, um, you like to see a coupling of medication with talk therapy or with behavioral therapy? Or is it, are you against medication? Or you just kind of want to see it involved with other forms of therapy. So I'm not against medication. I've been on medication and I needed it. It, it helped me get out of the space that I was in. Um, and then I reached a point, you know, where I, where I didn't need to continue with the medication. My depression also shows up very differently and um, is, would be considered a milder case. I am 100% for medication if it's needed and if the person believes they need it and their doctor thinks they need it. I, I will not say, no, it's not good for you. And I'm, I'm not you know, a, a medical professional to be able to say that. I think that there are times when medication definitely serves and I also think it's not the only piece to, to helping with mental illness because if it was then then you know we'd have the cure and we wouldn't be experiencing it anymore so it's clear um, that that there is more than just the medication that's needed overall um, and therapy is great um, and you know and the work that I do is coaching which is different from therapy um, often therapy um, involves so essentially therapy involves looking at where are you today and how did you get here so it's a lot of work work on the past there's healing that's done you know just really reviewing how you got to the certain place that you did how you created self-limiting beliefs you know all these different things stories it could be trauma that kind of stuff coaching looks at where are you today and where do you want to be and so while, you know, obviously there are times where we, we need to kind of look into the past of like, you know, where did the self-limiting belief come from? We don't live in that space. We, we kind of identify it for the purpose of then moving forward. So the work that I do with the mental health um, is saying, okay, you know, what, what does feeling healthy look like to you? What, um, you know, where do you want to be when it comes to your own mental health or with a family member? Like, how do you want to be showing up? Because most of the people that come to me who are family members are saying, like, 
you know, I don't know what to do. I'm lost. I'm upsetting them all the time. And, you know, I'm, you know, it's feelings of frustration. And so we explore, okay, well, how would you like to feel? How would you like your relationship with your family member to look? And then we, based on those goals, we work on what the individual's you know, can be doing mindsets they can have, actions they can be taking um, to get to that end result. So there is a forward movement. Okay. All right. No, that's, man, I thought that was, that might be kind of something you might, uh, <laughs> you might have got to. Um, so, uh, so now, Miss uh, Anhang, um, with your coaching, it kind of stems from a more personal experience, does it not? It sure does. Okay. Um, now, of course, you're comfortable. But would you mind telling us your personal experience and how you kind of, where you kind of started and how you kind of got to where you are today? For sure. Uh, so, um, my husband passed away 14 years ago. He died by suicide after. Um, suffering from um, severe mental illness. He had bipolar disorder. He also had a form of schizophrenia, which I believe is called schizoaffective disorder. So, um, and, and he, yeah, he died by suicide, um, uh, you know, after really losing hope. Um, the, the treatments uh, were not working for him. The medication wasn't working for him. He only had his diagnosis a couple of years earlier. And um, so at the time, I was 34. We had been married already for a while. We got married pretty young, um, had two little kids. And um, right after he passed away, as, as the you know, family kind of gathered when you know, we, we had the news, um, one of the family members turned to me and said, what are we going to tell people? And you know, that was coming from a place place of shame, a fear of the stigma. And so we made a decision to tell everybody that he died in an accident. And so for over 10 years, I lied about the truth of my husband's death, um, you know, telling people that he died, died in an accident. And, you know, often people say to me like, wow, how did you get to that? How did you, you know, kind of become okay with it? And, and I want to stress that like, the shame didn't just start in that moment. You know, I, I came from a family that was pretty shame-driven, married into one that was very similar. We lived, you know, we both grew up in the same community where mental illness wasn't talked about, suicide wasn't talked about. So we were already keeping many secrets. And so this was just one more. And um, unfortunately, though, that choice, um, ended up impacting my own mental health. As I mentioned, I, you know, have, have depression and, um, and anxiety. And so it really, um, exacerbated both, you know, I, I didn't grieve a suicide. I was, you know, pretending to grieve an accident or it was a fake accident. So I couldn't talk about all the extra emotions that, um, that are involved in grieving a suicide. And so I kind of just shoved everything down and just moved forward living in this lie, which, you know, created a lot of depression. And, um, and I was always anxious that somebody was going to find out the truth, that I would be called out as a fraud, that, you know, somebody might tell my kids accidentally because they, they were seven and four when he died. And so part of us lying about it, were, you know, we told ourselves it was to protect the kids. 
Um, oh, so, so, you, so you, they, they didn't know. They thought he died in a car accident as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. And, um, and really, you know, my whole life ended up being designed around this, this lie. Um, you know, and just, and the way that it impacted me and my self-esteem and the choices that I made, you know, I isolated a lot because I didn't want to, I didn't want to let people in and have them want to talk about what happened with my husband. So I kind of glossed over and like, yeah, that was a long time ago and, and you know, I, I don't go there. And so, you know, and essentially, you know, tolerated a lot of things in my life, um, made choices, you know, kind of came from this place of like, you know, I don't deserve better because I'm a liar, even though I didn't want to believe I was a liar. And so, you know, this whole cognitive dissonance that I had and, you know, just had, have, was living with a lot of pain, a lot of the unhealed grief, um, you know, being in, in, you know, a job that I felt like, well, it's, it's secure and, you know, it pays the bills and I'm a single mom. So who am I to go and dream and want something more for myself? I should just be happy here. And so I stayed in that job for 10 years and it was not a place that I was supposed to be. Um, I was in a relationship with somebody that was very unhealthy because I wasn't healthy. So, you know, I wasn't attracting health, you know, any, anything healthy into my life. And, you know, I, I got to a point where, you know, I, I turned 45 and I was, you know, kind of had to reassess like, oh my gosh, I'm living in so much pain. How much longer can I go on like this? And I'm, I certainly can't, you know, this is only the halfway mark. I can't go another 45 years or more in like in this much pain. And so I really, I came to a point where it was just like, I have to do something about it. And so I did, I, you know, went back to therapy. I did a lot of work around my trauma and let go. And then, you know, through this healing process, um, you know, I, I started to connect with people that, um, were loving, were accepting, that were not shame-driven the same way that I was, where I could be open and honest about what my experiences were. And so, you know, with, coupled with the strength of, of their love and the work that I was doing, I was able to finally come to a point where I could tell my children the truth and then tell the world the truth. And, you know, and then I realized from there, like, this is, this is how I want to serve in the world. These are, you know, I know what it's like to live in that dark, dark space. And, you know, while we, everybody's experience is different, um, I can relate to a lot of what people with mental health challenges or family members with mental health challenges, what they're experiencing. And I felt like this is how I can serve. And, you know, and I want people to know that, you know, we don't have to, live in the darkness you know that there's so much you know between the stigma and the shame of it and and just the experience of it where just there's so much heaviness and so much darkness and and there is a way out and you know i my hope is is to really illuminate for people that you know there there, there is so much light to be found there you know life doesn't have to be as hard as we sometimes make it for ourselves or we think it has to be. And so that's, that's why I'm here today. Um, so after, and so after you kind of decided you were going to 
start to finally release like all of this pressure and stress. Um, did you ever decide to tell your children or did you settle into like maybe they're an adults or wh- when was that decision so, made? Yeah, that was the first, the first step for me. Um, in, in you know coming out with with the truth um so that ha- that was about two and a half years ago um maybe closer to three um but they um they were at that point 18 and 15 and you know it was it was something that was just like you know this like i had come to a place of healing of recognizing like this isn't my shame to carry and I don't want to carry this burden anymore. And it was terrifying. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Like, it wasn't just like, okay, I, I'm over this and I'm just going to tell my kids. I was so scared. I thought, you know, they may never speak to me again. They're going to be angry. You know, I don't know what kind of reaction they might feel like their, their whole life was a lie. And, um, you know, and at the same time, I also knew I have to, you know, you know, I'm now living this life of, you know, or wanting to step into a life of authenticity. And that was the first step. It's like, if I can't be truthful with my children, who, you know, who can I be truthful with? Or like, am I even being truthful? So, so yeah, I, I you know, I mean, again, I had a, a group of people that were supporting me through it. It was very intentionally designed how I wanted to tell my kids, um, and so I had the support where we actually like had a, a group call before I told my kids and, you know, everybody cheering me on and saying, you can do it. And, and then afterwards, you know, I called them all to tell them how, how it went. And my kids took it amazing. They, they, I could not have asked for a better um, experience or a better outcome. You know, they, they both that they wished they had known from the beginning and they also understood why why I made the choice that I did. You know, they, they knew what the families were like, they knew what the community was like. So they had that understanding, but they were extremely forgiving. And yeah, and I said to them at that point, I was like, there, you know, no more lies, no more secrets. Ask me whatever you want. I will answer it. Um, and you know, and moving forward I want our relationship, you know, I don't want any secrets between us. And, and we really created that and, and designed that. And, you know, they're both very open with me about, you know, their, their life experiences, I think, more than a lot of teenagers would have been. I mean, now, now they're already a few years older, one of them, you know, almost 22. Um, but, you know, I, it was kind of this openness and this acceptance that I was able to reach from the healing work that I've done and from really wanting things to be different of like, you know, we, we have these experiences in life, like being human is, is really messy. And, you know, when, when we make ourselves wrong for having these messy experiences, that's where we go into the shame spirals and, and it doesn't have to be that way. And so, you know, when my kids would come and share things with me, challenges, I'd be like, yeah, this is, this is part of growing up. This is what it is, you know, Thank you for sharing that with me. I wouldn't judge them for it. And, um, you know, we now have, have a really beautiful uh, relationship and they both you know they can come to me and they do come to me often for advice. And, you know, they, they don't feel that they have to hide things. They know there's acceptance there. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, a big part of my message too is that, you know, 
relationships can be repaired. You know, even if you're not in that space right now, it doesn't mean that tomorrow, you you know, you, you can't do things differently. And so, yeah, only a few short years later, I could not ask for a better relationship with my kids. That's good. Yeah, because I, I know that uh, being, well, I think you said uh, five and eight. Um, uh, seven and four. Seven yeah. and four. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, those are two tough ages to really, I mean, it's hard to explain loss to an adult, let alone, you know, uh, two children. Um, now you mentioned the community and your, and the two families, how did they, how did they take it or how did the families take it when you finally decided, okay, I'm going to start, I'm going to start to tell, you know, the truth about what, what had happened. Um, Honestly, they're not really acknowledging it. <laughs> it's the truth. Um, I I did tell my husband's parents. Um, before, you know, actually, I told I told the whole immediate family. Um, you know, when I felt that it was time for me to tell my kids, and and they know the work that I'm doing, and you know, they they were like, okay, but yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure if you and I are, are Facebook friends, but I'm sure you've seen my, you know, my social media. I'm mm-hmm. very vocal about the work that I do. I post all of the podcasts online, and there is no acknowledgement. <laughs> um, you know, I, I do have, I have a brother who does, who does, you know, really support me in the work that I do, and, and um, you know, and I do have, you know, and a sister-in-law who, who's amazing as well. Um, but overall, I, I've just come to accept that, you know, they're they're not ready to fully embrace this. You know, they're not telling me don't do it. Um, but, you know, I realize this, you know, they're still working through their own challenges with things. And, you know, we're, we're all on our own journeys and have our own timeline. So I don't judge it. Um, and, you know, I, I have created such a strong network of support of people who really uh, have, have helped me build myself up, who themselves have built me up, that I don't need the acknowledgement or the support from everyone. I know who I can turn to and um, and who's there for me. And, and I think that's an important thing too, to mention that, you know, when we're talking about our mental health challenges and going to support people, it's knowing who who to go to for support. Um, You know, not everybody is able to be with us, you know, during these times and can give us the support that we we might be looking for. And often that, you know, we'll reach out to that person who maybe has their own, you know, challenges with what mental illness means or, you know, or the stigma or any of that. And they, you know, we feel like they're shutting us down. But it's because of their stuff. It's not because of our stuff. But often when we're in a dark place, we kind of internalize and feel like, oh, you know, I needed them to be there for me and they couldn't. And, you know, we end up feeling worse for it. So that's one thing that, um, you know, I I speak with my clients about and, and talk about as well, like share it when I speak publicly of just know who you're going to for support. Um, you know, go to the people who have that same mindset that you have or that you want to have of acknowledging that, you know, 
being human is messy. Mental illness is not something that we're choosing. Like we're not choosing to stay in bed all day. Um, you know, people that can can express their emotion openly. You know, some people just are not good dealing with pain, <laughs> so you know they're they're not going to be good with our pain because they're you know they they shut down their own. So really knowing who who you want to talk to, I find you know some people see the older generations. Um, you know, they, they didn't really, they still don't really understand what mental illness is. Like, I, I remember my grandmother, you know, not even being able to understand what a headache, like, why would a headache stop you from anything? <laughs> you know, like, that was her mentality. And, you know, she, she, you know, and so, you know, knowing, like, okay, I'm not going to go cry to her when I've got a migraine. <laughs> so it's like, she's wonderful for other things, but not when I have a migraine, I'm not calling her. So yeah, that's that's an important part of it. Hmm. Okay. The, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting you said about um, the older generation because uh, I had a grandfather myself, and anytime anything went wrong ever, he would just he would literally tell you to go rub dirt on it. So I I can definitely understand you know <laughs> where you're coming from with um, with that, and I can definitely understand where you're coming from with the. You know, with the, uh, you talked a lot about kind of, and I, I don't know if you did it unknowingly, but stigma in yeah. in society. And, uh, you know, I'm not like a, I'm not like a therapist or, or a coach, but, you know, as, as a police officer, I've seen a lot of mental illness happen, not only in my own community, but in the community that we work in. And a lot of it does revolve around stigma and kind of, you know, what society thinks of, you know, asking for help, you know, mental illness, yeah. kind of what that means for your family. And that's something I want to ask you about. But first, we have to take this break. So remember, as we've been talking, you know, obviously mental health is important. The best place I can give you to go is to Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And that's a national helpline. That phone number is going to be one 800 662 help which would be 4357 call them if you're ever in need of finding mental health services or need somebody to talk to and they can forward you to a number of resources a number of people and a number of institutions which can hopefully help you with whatever you have going on they deal with everything from you know minor drug abuse to you know major life changes to loss to gun violence really anything that you might need help with so remember you guys can always call the National Mental Health, one of the National Mental Health Services, which is going to be Sam, SAMHSA, so Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration at 1-800-662-HELP, which is 4357, because taking care of yourself is very, very important. Do you kind of find your work in general that a lot of the issues with, you know, mental health and individuals dealing with it is a lot to revolve around, you know, stigma and what people are like, what they think and how they fear what maybe people will think of them? Yeah, yeah, stigma definitely plays a part in it. And I'll tell you, you know, I mean, before the pandemic, when I was speaking, you know, on stages and, you know, and publicly in person with people, every single time I got on the stage, people would come up to me afterwards and tell me about something they were hiding. 
um, usually revolving around mental illness. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there were definitely a, a few suicides that were hidden or kind of like, I think, I think it was suicide, you know, of like a friend or, you know, a different family member, but, you know, but it wasn't confirmed. Um, but, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of hiding, um, that's happening. And I, you know, I see how, how it can happen in our society. You know, we, we have this notion of this, you know, we, we've developed this culture where, you know, strength is in being busy. If you're burned out from working too hard, it's almost celebrated in a way. It's like, wow, look at you, how hard you're working. You know, working, you know, 10, 12-hour days is, you know, seen as a good thing versus just, you know, working eight hours and taking your lunch breaks and your breaks. Like, you're, it's, it's, you're not, you're viewed differently if you're working harder, if you're pushing yourself, if you're depleted, you know, versus somebody who, you know, might be saying like, you know, I, I have, you know, I have depression and I need to rest today. There's, there is, um, there's judgment around that, you know, it's somehow seen as a weakness that something, you know, something might is wrong with you even of, you know, feeling this and people often don't understand the complex nature of it. They, they think it's a choice. They think, well, if you just shift your attitude, you'll be better. <laughs> Not realizing that there's this, oh yeah, you know, and, and uh, it, it's interesting because I actually, I, I did a podcast interview um, last week with somebody who, you know, based on the work that they were doing, I thought they were a lot more educated around mental health and they were trying to convince me that it's just all a shift in perspective. And it was like, you can't happy your way out of depression. I'm sorry. It's just, you know, doesn't matter if you see the silver lining. Like, there's stuff going on in our bodies that are, are putting us in this place. And, you know, and I use my particular example of depression how it shows up for me because you know there are different ways that, that mental illness can show up with people my particular flavor of depression for lack of a better word um shows up with me feeling exhausted i'm just tired all the time i don't go into the negative thinking um if anything it's almost like my body is just wanting to shut down so i don't feel emotions which generally i'm i'm a pretty emotional person so you know i can cry at like you know i'll cry at commercials if, if they're particularly <laughs> touching you know i cry when people win money on game shows and so if i notice like oh i'm watching a movie and this is a sad scene and i should be crying you know or i know that like yeah this is something that usually impacts me that's a check-in for me of like oh how else am i feeling and i see my other signals but i don't go into that space of like feeling low and feeling worthless I'm just like, I will sleep 10 hours at night and then I will nap during the day and still not feel well rested and, and I don't feel emotion. So there's no way that shifting my perspective is going to do a damn thing for me, excuse me, you know, <laughs> but, you know, like I can think happy thoughts as much as I want and I'm going to be like, and I still need to take a two hour nap this afternoon because the 10 hours <laughs> of sleep I had last night was just not enough. So, you know, there's a failure to recognize and really, sometimes people want to believe that there's validity in that and that somebody who has, you know, a, perhaps a, a panic disorder, that they're not choosing to have a panic attack and get really, really worried about something. Like there was something chemical happening to them that 
is making them go from zero to a hundred about something that may or may not be happening. It's not completely in their control. And, you know, people are just kind of wanting to like, you know, dim it. But that also comes from that place like we were talking about the older generations where, you know, like they kind of wanted everybody to be stoic and be even keel. And like, we don't go into, we don't do emotions. So it's kind of like, just stuff that. Like, don't be too happy and don't be too sad, no matter what's going on. So there's still that element of it that we haven't outgrown yet. And, you know, I always, I, I say that, like, it's kind of like the same mentality is that we had back in the day when it was like, you know, children should be seen and not heard. And we've overcome that, but we still haven't gotten past that around mental illness. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard a lot about like, uh, just like perspective shifting. I have a couple of friends who, uh, they're, they deal with, uh, mental health and they, their professions kind of revolve around it. And they always tell me, you know, well, if people would just think happier thoughts, they'd be fine. And, or if, oh, if they would just disconnect from, you know, their social media, they'd be fine. And I'm like, well, you know, that might be true in some cases, but for other people, they still have those underlying uh, issues or those underlying thoughts or those underlying um, like situations that happen in their life that trigger their depression. So I think that there's a lot, you know, I don't think that taking one angle at mental health is the way to go. You know, I, I've, I've heard that when you mentioned that, I was like, that's kind of funny. I've heard that before as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's certainly helpful. And it's only one piece of the puzzle. Like the same way medication is one piece of that puzzle. Perspective is, um, you know, the amount of sleep that we're getting is, the, you know, exercising, you know, what we eat has, you know, our diet impacts our mental health. So there are so many components and, and we have to, you know, look at all of them. And, you know, the, a lot of the work that I do too with, with mindfulness is really just about, you know, for one thing, becoming aware of like, what am I experiencing right now? And then the second piece, which is so, so important is not judging it because some, you know, we're, we're so often telling ourselves like, I shouldn't be feeling this and we make ourselves wrong or the way we speak to ourselves, like, you know, like, Oh my God, I can't believe you said that. You're so stupid. Like this is what we're saying in our heads and the way we talk to ourselves can be cruel. And so that's one piece of it as well, of just noticing, like, how often are we judging ourselves? How often are we making things worse for ourselves? And how much easier it can be when we're not. And for me, you know, dealing with my own mental health challenges, like I said, when I'm noticing, um, you know, like, I might notice first that, like, oh, wow, I didn't cry during that movie, which I know I usually would. That's a signal to me that, okay, depression might be, I might be going into an episode so I'm going to clear my calendar or lighten my calendar and take extra care of myself. I'm not going to try and push through it and plow through it. I'm going to just say like, okay, this is what it is. Clearly there's something going on. You know, tomorrow's a self-care day. And so, you know, I might give myself a sleep. I might take it easy. Like these, I'm, I'm looking at all of these symptoms and signals from my body. They're giving me information and, you know, and I can just interpret that information without judgment and then act accordingly to what suits me. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's the, the best way to do it. I don't think enough people really listen to themselves and then try to, you know, 
take take what their what their body is saying and then fix. I think a lot of people say, okay, well, you know, I'm feeling down today, but I'm gonna still go to work and I'm gonna still do this and do that and keep myself busy and be busy work instead of being like, well, what if I just went to the spa today? Or well, what if I just laid around and did something I, I want to do for fun today? You know, I don't think people take enough of those um, of those mental health days, especially uh, in America. I don't think we take enough mental health days at all, especially revolving around how our how we kind of gear our society. I don't think that we uh, we really approach mental health the best, which actually wanted, which actually leads me into what I wanted to ask you. So, Michelle, you're in Canada, correct? Yeah. Okay. How is the Canadian system geared towards uh, mental health? Is it different than the American system, if you're familiar? So, um, I think, you know, there, there are definitely similarities in our approach um, or lack of approach. <laughs> I think that, you know, I, you know, the North American society, like, you know, which, you know, it, in both countries, um, we view mental health the same way. Um, you know, our systems, our medical systems are set up a bit differently. Um, you know, we, we have, um, you know, what we call the Medicare system, which is publicly funded. Um, so it's um, essentially, you know, each province, which is equivalent to, to your state, um, you know, doctors bill bill the province and get paid for it. So, you know, it comes through our taxes, but we're not actually paying for it independently. Um, so essentially the idea behind that is to make healthcare accessible to everyone, but there are also limitations with it. So, you know, while yes, I can go to any doctor I want um, to go to, you know, to go to specialists, I need a referral and there are long wait times. And so with mental health, um, I have two choices. I can either go through, you know, a province-run um, uh, organization, but there are huge, huge wait lists. Uh, you know, it could, you could be waiting six months to a year. To oh, man. Yeah. So then the other alternative is if I happen to be fortunate enough to be able to pay for it out of pocket or if my company, you know, has, has an insurance plan that maybe I'm paying into that will cover some of it, then I can go to the private route. But if you don't have the money to do that, you're stuck with those waiting lists. And so that can really get in the way. Um, you know, I, I think that with both countries, I think finances get in the way you know, for, for both of us mm -hmm. in that way. But, you know, really, if you don't have the means to pay for it, you're you're not getting the best care possible. Yeah, and it's actually interesting because up until a little while ago, a lot of American uh, insurance company, health insurance companies, they really didn't acknowledge uh, mental health as a form of care. And so you'd have to come out of pocket, really, with anyone you saw. But... um it's interesting what you say about the wait times because a lot I know a lot of people uh well it's kind of a growing thing here is that they want uh like universal health care and for that to address mental health issues but it seems and I've talked to a lot of different people and now for you that a lot of that you know government ran or state ran health care would mental health care would really be really really long wait times which I don't think anybody needs really long wait times when 
I mean, if you're depressed in January, seeing somebody in, you know, August isn't going to do you a whole lot of good. No, exactly. Um, and, you know, my my younger son, who, by the way, has given me permission to talk about this, just in case anybody's wondering why she's talking about her son. Uh, but um, he was diagnosed with depression um, a year or so ago. And to try and get him funded, you know, I was either looking at, you know, professionals that were charging between two and $300 an hour. Whoa, or, that's a lot. Or, you know, trying to get... Um, something that was that was covered by my province and I would have to fight with them you know because yeah there were wait lists and I'm calling like the different organizations because there are you know a few different ones mm -hmm. and with each one I'm I'm saying to them you don't understand like his father died by suicide I will not go through this again with another family member and I would be fighting with them tooth and nail I would say escalate me you need to escalate me and fighting and really having to advocate for myself and luckily I had one organization that did escalate me there's another one that like still sends me like it's so ironic they send me emails saying like you know please you know here's a survey about our services and I'm like I think I'm still on the wait list <laughs> 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 a year and a half later thanks very much for nothing but um yeah but I I had to fight I had to call and call and escalate and and advocate just to to get my son you know the, the help that he needed and I don't think like I, you know, and, and that was something that, that, you know, it, it was, you know, it's actually one of the organizations where they were asking me in the survey, I was like, you know what, families shouldn't have to do that. I'm, I'm an only parent. I'm dealing with enough. It's stressful enough for me to see like my 18 year old who is, you know, talking about depression. It's like re-traumatizing me. Like I have PTSD already from what happened with his dad. It's bringing all this up. Do you think I really need to be sitting here spending weeks on the phone begging somebody to, to take him? Like that's, that's unfair to people, you know, to families that are going through this. Like it, it shouldn't be this hard. And so it's, it's frustrating. I think that we are so behind you know, I, I think, I, I don't know about other countries, but I think the U.S. and Canada are still so behind on the work that we need to do, the funding that we get for mental health. Yeah, and and I think a lot of it, we're kind of behind the eight ball because for a while it was kind of seen as, you know, you know, if, if you were depressed, especially as a male, if you were you know, sad, it was kind of, well, you know, don't be a sissy, suck it up, go to work, and you'll be fine. You just need to get over it. And I think that that mentality actually kind of carried itself into the early 2000s until a lot of these um, organizations like Mothers Against Suicide and stuff like that started to kind of pop up. And we started to really take a hard look at uh, mental health. And, you know, I, I just kind of think that now that we're switching to a society where this is, it's acceptable to be depressed and it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to ask for medication. I think now our system is overwhelmed because there's not enough, there's not enough people who specialize yeah. in this to help people. Yeah. And, and I agree, and I, I think, yeah, and, and I think a lot of it comes from funding programs, too, like there's a lack of it, and, you know, I look right now at the pandemic, and, like, this is, this is global, we all know that, you know, they, they all say that, like, the, set, the next pandemic is going to be a mental health pandemic, 
suicide rates are rising. You know, people are dealing with, um, you know, anybody that had a mental health challenge before, it's so much worse right now. People that never experienced mental health challenges are feeling it now from the isolation, from the fear of like not knowing what's happening to the economy, not not knowing like, you know, should I wear a mask? Should I not wear a mask? What, what about that person who just coughed, who wasn't wearing a mask? Like, am I going to get sick? Like, there's so much fear and we know and yet we're not doing anything about it. We're just talking about like, we know this is going to happen. But we're not hearing of, you know, governments giving extra funding or enough funding to be covering what, you know, what we know is a huge problem already. So it's, it's you know, it's not being prioritized. It's very disappointing. Yeah, and it's interesting you actually mentioned the mental health pandemic because I heard a, I heard some, I heard a podcast and I can't fly from remember what their name was. But they had a guest and they're talking about it. And it was uh, it was in the summer of 2020. So it was just recently. And it was during the, the um, well, I mean, it was uh, during the time where America, for some reason, we had a mass shooting at a school or at a mall every other day, it seemed. And, you know, this individual was talking about how, you know, they they were they were thinking that a lot of undressed anxiety through, you know, globalization and through, you know, being connected with other people and kind of through people being too involved in other people's pain and suffering would lead to another, you know, kind of mental health crisis worldwide. And then I reheard this, I reheard the same person speaking on another podcast, which was kind of weird that I'm like, who is, why is this guy so popular? Um, But he was on another podcast and they're talking about how COVID has really kind of accelerated uh, the mental health crisis. And, you know, for people who do take it seriously, it's created a lot of anxiety for people who've lost family. It's created a lot of depression. And for people who, you know, aren't leaving their house as much and people aren't able to get out, it's kind of creating a lot of, you know, that, you know, that social angst and that, that loneliness and is that something you've kind of noticed too, though, with the COVID pandemic in Canada? Yeah, yeah, we're it's definitely on the rise, um, and you know, yeah, people. I mean, there, there's so many levels of fear, and you know, it's and and you know, I mean, I I didn't listen to the podcast, but I don't know if if I believe that um, it's because we're we're bouncing off of each other's fears and we're too involved in each other's lives, like. From a physiological perspective, you know, we have have this survival instinct. Our brain is wired to keep us alive. Mm-hmm. And so from that perspective, our brain is on overload. Like, Because essentially our brain is just looking for us to be safe. Like if you think from like evolutionary times, like when, you know, the early man or woman was, was, you know, were in caves and there were animals to be feared. And so they were always looking for how to be safe. Well, you know, we've created a lot of safety in our lives or perceived safety. But right now there's this huge pandemic where, you know, you don't know if you're going to get sick if you go to the grocery store. You don't know if you're going to have your job tomorrow. You don't, you know, you don't know, you know, if everybody's healthy. There's so many different levels of it that, um, you know, our brains can't calm calm itself because we still have too much that's unknown they you know they don't have a vaccine yet that we can say oh at least there's a vaccine and we know that the numbers are going to go down like 
There's there's no guarantee of anything. And we're we're hearing like hundreds and thousands of people are dying. And, you know, we're all kind of just sitting ducks, like we don't know what, what to do. And so our brains can't get to that calm space because there's no certainty around any of this. And, you know, I know you guys have the elections, which is causing a whole other level of, oh, geez. you know, it's a, friends, <laughs> a frenzy. Sorry? I said it's a frenzy with this election right now. Right. So, so that's just one more element of, you know, it's just one known, one more unknown variable that keeps us from being able to kind of find a sense of peace in, in even just today, you know, because beforehand we can say like, okay, I'm going to my job that I know I still have, you know, my money's in my bank account, it's good, stocks are okay, you know, but right now we, we don't have any guarantee of anything. And again, like right now it's even just like, you go for a walk, you don't know that you're not catching something. Right. So, so it's impossible. So anybody who's already predisposed to having these kinds of fears, it's going to make it a heck of a lot worse. And kind of switching gears, how how did COVID impact uh, Canada? And what is Canada kind of doing to address it today? So we, we're faring a lot better than you guys. Um, <laughs> you know, we, I think, yeah, I know. It's like, I almost want to apologize. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, that's a Canadian thing. Yeah, we apologize for everything. But I think here, we've been pretty proactive um, in closing things down. Our government overall are taking things pretty seriously. I think the citizens are taking things quite seriously. So we contained our numbers pretty quickly. Um, my personal opinion, though, is that we open things up maybe a little bit too quickly because, you know, we had, um, you know, just looking at like from our, my province. So like Ontario has about 16 million people. So we got it down to like a hundred new cases per 16 million, uh, which was great. But now we're up to like 800 a day because, you know, our schools are open. So now we're actually starting to close things down again. So they've closed down the gyms, they've closed down, um, you know, indoor seating at restaurants. So certain things are being closed down just to try and contain it again. But I find that overall, um, people are pretty respectful here. And even if they don't necessarily feel that it's relevant to them, because I know there, there are different schools of thoughts on, you know, on, it's, you know, is this, you know, a conspiracy? Is it not? How bad is it? How, you know, even if you think like, okay, it's like the flu, but I think people overall, you know, are trying to be respectful. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of people who may not think it's that big a deal, but they don't want to upset other people when they go out, so they'll wear a mask in indoor places. So here, it's mandatory to wear masks anywhere indoors, and we, we've limited the number, you know, number of people that can be in <coughs> gatherings, like even outdoor gatherings. Um, so, so we're pretty careful, and and people are are respecting it overall. That's good. Yeah, because I know uh, in America, there's a whole lot of uh, divisiveness and polarization, yeah. which really drives a whole group of people nuts. Uh, I don't know. It's it's chaotic here. Yeah, yeah. When it's it so when it comes to the <laughs> when it comes to the COVID thing, um, and I mean, hopefully we can find a middle ground on it. But getting yeah. back getting back to what we were talking about, hopefully, uh, it's you know, my hope is that. 
through more exposure with mental health and as, you know, I'm hoping more health providers and more, you know, state government and more insurance agencies realize that people have, you know, a lot of, a lot of the issues people have come from just needing some type of mental health, you know, whether it's with drugs or whatever have you, I think that a lot of issues in people's lives can actually be resolved if they just have someone to talk to, or if they just have access to, you know, a certain type of resource. So, you know, I, I think this was a pretty good conversation and I'm actually, I thank you a lot for coming on because I think it's actually very important to continue to get that type of, you know, the type of exposure out and to get people to start thinking more about, what we need to do to kind of better our, our society. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, one thing that, that I um, always share with people is like, you know, I mean, you know, the idea of ending stigma feels really, really big. And I think, you know, it starts with each one of us of just noticing like, where, where are we judgmental? You know, because, and a lot of it's conditioning. A lot of it's just unconscious of just like, oh, that person took another day off work. That's great. Now I have more on my plate and not acknowledging that that person is actually sick and not, not well, that there's something real going on. So, you know, it could be something small like that. It could be, you know, just whatever we're judging. I know for me, that was um, a big part of the work that I did of noticing, you know, what, what, where was my shame, you know, around the suicide, around my mental health challenges, around my husband's mental health challenges, you know, where, where did I judge and how could I be more open and more compassionate with myself and with other people who are experiencing things? I mean, there's so, you know, there are so many people that, you know, when somebody's posting all the time about the pain they're in, it's like, oh my God, they're so dramatic. It's like, no, they're suffering. You know, so, so just noticing where we make the judgments, that's how each of us can do our little part to ending the stigma. Yeah, no, I, I, think that's, I think that's very well said. I think that the stigma does need to be ended because I think that it's important that we realize that you know, people's pain, while I know, that, I know that a lot of us tend to be, especially in America, individualistic, we kind of think about our own lives and our own things we have going on we have to realize that people's pain and suffering is really important and it it's very real to them no matter how minute it might seem to us it's very very real to another person yeah yeah but uh yeah we're not walking in their shoes exactly and i think it's like you know the old saying walk a mile so i think that that's actually very important but uh michelle that's all we really have time for today but i thank you a whole lot for coming on and sharing your story with us having me no problem at all chatting with you no problem at all i think it was a very good conversation and for anybody who wishes who wishes to reach uh, michelle further i will have the link to her website in the uh, comment description boxes or you can find on any of the websites that this podcast is posted on so for now we give michelle a round of applause and a hand and say thank you and hopefully we continue this discussion again one day